It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Thanks for downloading another episode. We're about to delve into the most famous Hindu book of scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Richard Davis recently published a biography of the Gita as part of Princeton University Press's Lives of Great Religious Book series. We've been interviewing authors who contribute to that series. Davis is a professor of religion at Bard College, and his book tells the Gita's story from its beginnings in ancient India to its renaissance in the early 20th century in the West to its place in the hearts and minds of Hindus today. The Gita consists of a conversation between a man named Arjuna and the god Krishna about war and violence and duty and obligation. Millions have looked to the Gita for insight and the struggle for self-mastery that we all must wage. Questions or comments about this and other episodes of the Maxwell Institute podcast can be emailed to mipodcast at byu.edu. Don't forget to rate and review the show in iTunes and help us grow our audience. Richard Davis, thank you for joining us today on the Maxwell Institute podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Blair. So I wanted to begin with an overview of the Bhagavad Gita because most of my listeners probably haven't read it and maybe aren't very familiar with it. So let's start with an overview then. Okay, I'd be glad to. Uh, so the Bhagavad Gita is a, a portion, a very small portion of a much larger Indian epic poem called the Mahabharata. And the Mahabharata tells a story of a great war. It tells a story about how in ancient times uh, the warrior class of India became increasingly fractious and uh, contentious, uh, leading to a sort of a, a war that involved all of the uh, rulers of India, but it was centrally between two sets of cousins, uh, the Pandavas and the Kauravas. And on the Pandava side, and they're portrayed in the Mahabharata primarily as the good guys, although they uh, have many faults, um, the premier uh, warrior on the Pandava side is a character named Arjuna. And uh, in the battle, uh, that takes place at the center of the Mahabharata. Uh, his friend and brother-in-law, um, Krishna, acts as his charioteer. Uh, just before the battle, um, as the two sides have lined up in enormous uh, battle array, uh, Arjuna asks his charioteer Krishna to take him out in front of the in the no man's land between the two lines of battle. And uh, so that he can see, uh, you know, what, uh, what, what this situation is. And when he gets there, he has a real crisis. He says that he's experiencing um, grief and anxiety and a confusion over what his duty is. And Krishna, um, his charioteer, charioteers are usually uh, considered uh, lower uh, in, the, in the hierarchy of things, um, begins to talk to him and advise him and ultimately uh, to persuade him that he should indeed fight in this battle. Uh, as he does so, uh, Krishna becomes increasingly philosophical and uh, also, in the course of the conversation, he reveals that he is God. 
He is the supreme God. And uh, after uh, 700 verses of this uh, conversation, uh, Arjuna says, well, yes, okay, finally, I do agree with you. I see now my duty. I recognize that I will uh, be doing your will in this battle, and I will go ahead and fight. And so at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, then we, we have uh, Arjuna ready to fight, and uh, in the Mahabharata, as it continues, Arjuna fights with Krishna's continuing advice and help, and uh, the Pandavas emerge victorious in this battle, but it's a very grievous battle. M millions of people are killed, and the Pandavas have to deal with the grief that they feel over the war, really for the rest of their lives. So it's a story about, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is a story of, of persuasion, uh, philosophical persuasion, and ultimately a sort of a devotional text, but it's in this broader context of, of war. And the war context, I think, is a very important part of, of the whole Bhagavad Gita. So there have been Christian texts of sort of just war theory. Is this comparable to that, or did it serve a wider purpose in, in its original context? Kind of? Yes. So it is, it is a just war um, uh, text in the sense that it sets out uh, the duty for a member of the warrior class, a kshatriya. And uh, so Krishna is telling Arjuna that, in fact, his duty as a warrior is to fight in a righteous cause, even if that involves killing his relatives. So for, for Arjuna, one of the central conflicts is a, is a conflict over whether his family is more, his duty as a, as a member of a family is more important than his duty as a warrior. Uh, because mm. on the other side are his cousins and uh, his teachers. Um, so it is uh, that in itself is a, is a big problem that uh, Krishna resolves by saying, well, in this case, this is a righteous battle. You should do your duty as a warrior. And he goes on to try to um, explain that uh, he uses the, the Hindu concept of transmigration, which was a fairly new concept at this time, um, to explain that in, in this battle, uh, in fact, you won't be killing souls, you will only be killing bodies. So that's a, a, a kind of a philosophical perspective on, um, <laughs> on just war theory, in a way. Mm. But in the course of this battle, because Krishna is also presenting himself as God, uh, increasingly uh, war kind of takes a, um, a backseat, and uh, more and more the text as it goes along becomes a kind of a devotional text, a, a text about how um, to worship God. Um, and and in the course of that, then Krishna says, Arjuna, you will in this battle be my instrument, be my you will be my my uh, weapon. About what time period are we looking at again in terms of when the text uh, was probably written and what geographical area? Right. It's definitely a text from northern India, and the time of its composition has been a source of, of, of great uh, controversy over the centuries. Uh, Hindus, many of them believe that it was written thousands of years ago, 5,000 years ago. Um, scholars generally would place it in the early centuries CE, although even then it's, uh, it's uh, still controversial. Uh, so so I, I talk about it as a, as, a, as a text from classical India. 
um, which is for me a period from about 400 BC to four or 500 CE. Uh, and I would place it again in the maybe in the first two centuries CE. Okay, so Krishna appears in this text first as sort of a lower caste sort of um, charioteer well, here. Yes, yes, he's he's adopted this position. Um, he is a, he is actually a, a a prince in the Mahabharata. He's a, a ruler of another kingdom, and uh, he's a friend, a special friend to the to the to the Pandavas. But throughout the text, he's a kind of a mysterious character, and only in certain moments and, and to certain people does he actually reveal that he is uh, God. So some, some characters are aware of this, but by and large, uh, throughout the text, he's treated much more as, as just a human being. There's a striking moment in the text where Krishna reveals himself, right, where he actually sort of takes off his her manifests himself as, as this huge visual representation yes. sort of yes yes exactly so um yeah, this is in chapter 11 and it's a it's a wonderful moment and for me really it's the uh, kind of the uh, high point of the of the bhagavad gita um at a certain point uh he has explained in words to arjuna that he is god and finally, Arjuna says, okay, yes, I, I agree. I, I can understand that, you know, you are who you say you are, <laughs> uh, but I'd like to see it. And um, so Krishna says, okay, you can see this, but in order to see it, you will need divine vision. And so he grants Arjuna divine vision, the, 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 the ability to see what is in fact really there. And once Arjuna sees this, uh, this, this supernal form of Krishna, uh, which is an overwhelming vision, and includes, among other things, uh, Arjuna sees all of the warriors um, being swallowed up, going into the flames that are coming out of Krishna's many mouths. So it's, it's a horrific vision in, in part. And Arjuna finally says, oh, please, you know, take, take this away. I don't want to see this anymore. Uh, so um, in a way, it reflects, the, the vision reflects, um, you know, Arjuna's own situation and uh, his own anxieties about the battle. Uh, and and I, th I think it's important also that, that it's not that Krishna transforms himself, but that he grants Arjuna this ability to see what is in fact the case. So, right. so Arjuna is in fact seeing this, this broader um, realm of Krishna's existence that, that for the most part he as a human being is not able to see. Okay, so after this like divine vision, then is that when Krishna goes on to sort of explain the paths, uh, the ways to worship God after that point or before well, that point? Yeah, both before and after. Um, and and I, I sometimes think of of the uh, instructions that come after as a kind of a, a, a you know a post uh, baptismal catechism or something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's on the one hand he has already set all this out in in an effort to persuade Arjuna. Uh, but once the vision has taken place, the the teachings go on, uh, but there's a sort of a different quality, and um, and I think that that it it has that quality of okay now you are initiated, and now here are the further instructions. So the instructions continue to have to do with the three paths of um, action and knowledge and devotion. So those are but the three paths to. Those are the three paths to kind of spiritual attainment. Um, and uh, Krishna, 
I should say that the Bhagavad Gita itself doesn't uh, set them out as um, precisely as that, but this is that's a long-standing commentarial tradition that that the Bhagavad Gita deals with these three paths. So it kind of uh, talks about different elements of of attaining salvation, and these are kind of the categories of things, the ways people have categorized them after the fact of saying exactly, exactly so. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of gives us a basic overview of the text um, itself. So I want to switch gears here and talk about your connection to the text. How did your interest in the Gita begin? I'm interested kind of in your religious and academic backgrounds and whatever yes. led you to this topic. Yes. Okay. Well, that's a, a long story and I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, but, um, I, you know, I was raised a Christian in a small uh, Midwestern Protestant denomination. Uh, and when I went to college, I went to the University of Chicago, and I was became very interested in uh, other religions at that point in my life. Uh, this was the early 1970s, so there was a lot of kind of um, exploration among people in my generation. And my first contact with the Bhagavad Gita actually came because I was um, doing a kind of a fieldwork study of Krishna consciousness of the um, this uh, devotional uh, community that had been established in the 1960s in the United States mm -hmm. by uh, Swami Prabhupada, and um, uh, I was uh, going to write a junior paper um, on uh, the small. It was a five five uh, Krishna consciousness. Um, devotees in Chicago, and I went and worked with them, interviewed them, stayed with them, and uh, they gave me my first copy of the Bhagavad Gita. It was kind of mysterious, and it was a very important text to them, but I don't couldn't say that I understood it. Um, when I was a graduate student, I came back to it. I studied it um, both historically and uh, linguistically. That is, it was a Sanskrit text. I was studying Sanskrit, so it was one of the really um, good uh, teaching texts for a, for a young Sanskritist. And I learned about the uh, role of the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata in uh, the history of Hinduism and the history of Indian religions uh, as a graduate student. So, so my real introduction to the study of the Bhagavad Gita uh, was as a historical text. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the 27 years that I've been teaching um, Indian religions and Hinduism in, in colleges, um, that's the way I have most often presented it. This is a text from classical India. It is dealing with these kinds of issues that were very uh, important, that were crucial uh, to people of, at that time in India. Uh, it was the Bhagavad Gita was responding to this or that different um, other religious group. Uh, and also political questions and issues. So, so my primary um, orientation towards towards the Bhagavad Gita uh, before writing this book really uh, has been that it is a historical text from classical northern India. Uh, so, this uh, writing this book, the experience of writing this book, really um, uh, led me to uh, explore. Uh, the way the Bhagavad Gita has has continued to live, right? That's the premise of this whole series of books. And it's been really uh, a valuable um, experience for me because it's led me to see just how widely and differently uh, later readers have 
understood and made use of the text. So you come to the text as a scholar, but also as a Christian. And I know for some Christians, when they approach the Bible critically that way, uh, it can raise questions or concerns for them. When you approach a different religious tradition's revered text, like the Bhagavad Gita, what sort of things do you have to keep in mind as, as someone from a different religious tradition approaching a religious text? Yes, yes. Thanks for asking that. That's a really good question, a hard question. Um, so let me, I'll start with an anecdote. Um, when I was uh, just beginning to work on this book, um, the uh, denomination of, of uh, Christianity that I belong to, the United Church of Christ, uh, came up with a slogan uh, that we were going to use. And, you know, so at my particular church, it was uh, placed on a placard out in front of the church. And the slogan was, God is still speaking. And for me, this was a really uh, kind of a seminal um, slogan uh, because I thought, oh yeah, right? And for Hindus, Krishna is still speaking, right? God is still speaking. Uh, and so it gave me a, a kind of an entry point to thinking of the way in which a scripture continues to speak over time. Um, so my, I think my attitude towards reading uh, Hindu texts prior to um, working on this, uh, this book uh, was, well, yes, this was, you know, these, these are historical texts. These are scriptures that uh, address issues of, of that particular time, just as I also read the Bible as, you know, uh, Jesus was addressing his own situation uh, as a you know, uh, Israelite uh, peasant, uh, Jewish peasant, uh, under, you know, uh, conditions of occupation, Roman occupation. So, so you know, I, uh, his, historically reading scriptures uh, is, is one way of not having to deal with um, the universal claims that religious mm -hmm. scriptures do make. And um, I now you know, try to have it both ways, I think. Yes, they are historical texts. Yes, it is important to study them historically. And yet, yes, they also make very compelling um, uh, claims that have to be taken very seriously. Um, so I think one of the most interesting things to me um, has been uh, looking at the way in which other Christians and other Americans have tried to um, deal with uh, the Hindu claim, the, the claims that this Hindu text makes, right? Mm -hmm. Can can we really, how do we apply that teaching of uh, one's duty as a warrior, having uh, supervening uh, one's duty as a member of a family? Well, that's, uh, is that applicable? Yes. I mean, here we have a movie like American Sniper, you know, <laughs> sort of addressing some of the same questions. Um, and these are living questions. And um, I now, I think, uh, as a result of working on this book, um, try to think more seriously about how the same claims can be thought of in parallel uh, with contemporary conditions. In your university work, have you had any students take your classes that were devotees of the text? I do have that sometimes, yes. And um, in those cases, I say, well, 
you know, that's all well and good. Uh, this is a university. This is a college. Uh, and um, your faith commitments are, are really personal faith commitments. And um, I'm going to teach you this text uh, as a literary text, as a philosophical text, and as a historical text. So um, in, in a college classroom, I, uh, in accord, I think, with the sort of uh, customs of, 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 of secular academia, I try to not make uh, faith statements uh, a primary um, part of the, of, of, the, of the conversation. There must be a, kind of a variety of reactions to that, but have you generally, has it been generally positive for students who are also devotees of the text? Have they enjoyed your classes usually? Are there difficulties that they encounter as a result of the ways you look at it in a university setting? Yeah, most often I would say that there's a, a lot of um, appreciation for that. Um, and it, it's been less true uh, since I've been teaching at Bard, but my first position was teaching at Yale University where there are there were and are a lot of students of South Asian descent whose mm -hmm. uh, you know whose whose background, whose ethnic background is Hindu. Mm -hmm. And um, so they would come at it as you know young people who were looking and trying to understand uh, the background of their own faith. And with those students in particular, uh, the kind of the historical background and context that uh, a university, course can bring to understanding these texts was really valuable. Students would say, come up to me sometimes and say, well, now I understand, you know, where my grandmother back in India is coming from. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, it, would, it would provide a kind of a, a broader context for understanding things that they had experienced but never um, understood in that kind of intellectual way that, that we, hope, <laughs> we hope they will get it in a college setting. That's Richard Davis. He's a professor of religion and director of the Asian Studies program at Bard College in New York. And he's author of a biography of the Bhagavad Gita in the Lives of Great Religious Book series. Let's talk about authorship for a minute. We mentioned it a little bit earlier, but like many ancient religious texts, the origins of the Gita have proven to be somewhat controversial. So who wrote this text and what do different people say about the authorship of this text? Right. Well, I have about five different answers to that question, um, and um, one answer, uh, a very Hindu answer, is that uh, God wrote it. That is, that uh, this is the, these are the words of Krishna. That Krishna um, did did in fact um, incarnate himself in history and did present these teachings to. Uh, Arjuna on the battlefield, and that they have been then passed on uh, through generations. Um, another conventional uh, answer is that uh, a character named Vyasa, uh, wrote, who wrote the Mahabharata, um, recorded the uh, Bhagavad Gita. That is, that he was, a, he, and he actually appears as a very important character in the Mahabharata, but he is credited with being the person who put the Mahabharata story together. Is he the one whose his, his name means compiler or something? Compiler, like exactly so, yes. Uh, so those are two answers. Um, uh, the Mahabharata itself um, uh, explains its own um, conditions of recitation as a series of oral recitations. So um, the main um, recitation takes place 
it at a sacrifice that's being performed by one of Arjuna's descendants, Janamejaya, and it's told to him in a conversation with a pupil of Vyasa named Vaishampayana. And so that conversation is... Uh, is, is one telling of the Mahabharata. But then there's, it turns out that there's somebody else who's sitting at, this, at the sacrifice and he hears this entire conversation and then he goes back to another sacrifice and a bunch of sages are there and saying, hey, what did you hear when you were at this other sacrifice? And then he explains the same thing. So, so the um, Mahabharata presents itself as a series of oral conversations, uh, and that's one way that scholars have often understood the conditions of the Mahabharata's own uh, composition, that is, a series of stories that were told and retold and gradually expanded over time, over over several centuries, and and finally at some point put into a final form that that was probably written down. Um, So one of the things that scholars have done uh, over the last um, two centuries has been to say, well, then there must have been an earlier original Mahabharata. Can we get back to the original Mahabharata? Um, And so uh, critical editors have, have sort of sifted through all of the different manuscript versions of the Mahabharata. And... It turns out that all of the manuscripts that we have, and there are hundreds of them, um, all point back to what was probably a single written version of the Mahabharata that, that again, scholars um, would postulate was put into written form maybe around the 4th or 5th century CE. So the Bhagavad Gita, as part of that, was a, a, a composition within the Mahabharata that you know, again, has to have been before that final written redaction of the text. Um, so another controversy that uh, scholars uh, have engaged in over over the uh, last 200 years is whether the Bhagavad Gita was originally a separate composition that was somehow stuck into, you know, planted into the larger Mahabharata or whether it w- grew up in the course of the Mahabharata itself. And uh, on, on that point, I'm uh, with the second camp, the uh, I believe that the Bhagavad Gita is a very integral part of the Mahabharata. And uh, was, what kind of clues are, are scholars looking for when they're making that sort of a distinction? Because it's not like you can interview somebody from back then or find a manuscript from back then that says this was originally part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, originally. So, yes. Um, well, there are have to do with um, different kinds of. Um, uh, meters that are used and the vocabulary that's used, but uh, probably the largest uh, um, thing has been the kind of the uh, what one scholar, very well known scholar, called the dramatic absurdity of it. Right. So, it, oh, it would be absurd for uh, you know uh, a moment just before battle, while these two great armies are facing one another, for two people to. Uh, go out and have this conversation, which, you know, would take an hour and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can't possibly have, you know, it can't, the, the com- composers of the Mahabharata couldn't possibly have imagined that this could take place. And therefore, it must have been a separate compos- composition that was kind of stitched into the text. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, there, there is actually no final way of resolving the question. 
Uh, it has to do, I think, mostly for me, it has to do really with the way in which the conversation that takes place in the Bhagavad Gita addresses the kind of the concerns that are being that that are echoed throughout the text, uh, throughout the the epic uh, Mahabharata, and um, and the way in which the subsequent narrative sort of continues to reflect and echo those those points. I mean, does the question even matter that much to devotees? Are the stakes high for Hindu people when they're thinking about when it originated? Not at all. Not at all. No. And um, so from a, what is important is that from an early point, um, the Bhagavad Gita began to circulate as a separate, not a separate, but a, an independent uh, text mm-hmm. that could be read aside from its placement in the Mahabharata, right? That it was a self-standing philosophical text, right? So just as you could take uh, a book out of the, um, you know, the, the, the Christian Bible, right? So too, you could take the Bhagavad Gita and read it as a self-standing text. Mm-hmm. And that text, the Bhagavad Gita, became a uh, text that many uh, philosophers in medieval India commented on. Uh, so it became a kind of a, a one of the um, core texts that uh, philosophers of the Vedanta school would comment on uh, to, uh, to convey their own uh, philosophical and religious positions. Okay, so that kind of gets into this question about the rise of interpretive communities, right? So first, can you take just a second to just situate the Gita in the broader devotion, you call it the broader devotional cult surrounding the divine character of Krishna. So maybe situate the Gita within that broader devotional cult and then talk a little bit about the rise of these interpretive communities and what they did with the text. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, So in medieval medieval Hinduism, um, Krishna became the center of a major uh, devotional cult throughout uh, India. But um, most of the devotionalism that was directed at Krishna um, didn't have to do with his role in the Bhagavad Gita or indeed with his, within, with his role in the Mahabharata. A lot of it focused on the earlier parts of his life, uh, which are told in other texts, in which he grew up um, as a member of a of a cowherd community, um, and uh, was a very charming, uh, kind of rambunctious young infant, and then a very alluring, seductive uh, adolescent, whom all the um, gopis, the female cowherd cowherdesses, uh, <laughs> fell in love with. Uh, so, so it was a kind of a, a, a um, pastoral and erotic uh, cult, really. Hmm. And uh, so a lot of the devotional poetry, devotional songs, devotional plays that focused on Krishna in medieval India actually didn't have much to do with the Bhagavad Gita. On the other hand, uh, so that's one kind of uh, interpretive community that actually is taking Krishna off in a different direction. But at the same time, uh, in the Vedanta school, uh, which became one of the preeminent, the preeminent uh, philosophical school of of medieval India, um, 
The Bhagavad Gita was taken to be one of the three, uh, it's called the Prastana Triya, the three points of departure. So if you were going to be a major uh, Vedanta philosopher, you had to write commentaries on these three texts. Mm -hmm. One was the Upanishads, which was part of the Vedas. And that was classified as Shruti. Those were, that was classified as having the highest religious authority. The, um, would it be considered divine revelation, like actual? Well, yes, actually. From God, would, well, in fact, it was called. It was uh, said to be uh, non-human in origin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it exists eternally. Um, it exists, uh, you know, the world uh, comes into creation, goes out of creation, and comes back into creation. The Vedas persist through all of those creations and destructions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so that's so it, Shruti, it, scripture. That's Shruti, and that has the highest, for, for Orthodox Hindus, that has the highest religious authority. The but highest that's, that's not authority. where the Gita is situated, though, right? And the Gita is not. The Gita is not um, Shruti. It is called, considered Smriti, which means remembered. And those are texts that are not Vedic, but convey the print the underlying principles or uh, codes that are consistent with Vedic thinking. Uh, so the Bhagavad Gita was uh, one of those Smriti texts, but it was singled out as being one that uh, philosophers of this Vedanta school should comment on. This is where comparative religion gets a little tricky, right? When we're thinking about the concept of scripture. So your book is part of a series on the lives of great religious books. Uh, Christians and Jews usually think of religious books in terms of scripture, but you, in your book you talk about how calling the Gita the Hindu Bible, as some people uh, did early on as it was being translated into English and other languages, is problematic, right? It is, indeed. Yes, yeah, so the, 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 the idea of the Hindu Bible probably originates in the 19th century. Um, Nowadays, uh, if you go to India and ask a bunch of Hindus, well, what you know, you know, we Christians have our Bible and the Muslims have their Quran. What's your Bible? Uh, the Bhagavad Gita right. would turn up, um, you know, fairly regularly as uh, the Hindu Bible. Um, it was because no one wanted to read the whole Mahabharata, or what? <laughs> what? Like, oh, that's uh, sizable. Yeah, no. Well, it's true that no, the the Vedas, right, which are the texts that that. If, if, if one was going to cite anything as the proper Hindu Bible, they okay. should cite the Veda. Vedas. But the Vedas were written in a very old form of, of Sanskrit that, by and large, people didn't understand anymore. Mm. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of the Vedas have to do with ritual matters uh, or hymns to gods who are no longer worshipped. Uh, so the Vedas really, uh, on the one hand, were had a, ha, occupied the category of, of Bible. Uh, but they weren't – they didn't have the status. They didn't have the living quality of the uh, Bible except for with very uh, few, very, you know, sort of limited uh, communities. So the Bhagavad, the Bhagavad Gita um, was uh, singled out uh, for a number of reasons, uh, both uh, by Western uh, observers and then increasingly by Indians as having a kind of a Bible status in 
that it was uh, uh, what are the what are the features that made it appealing as a as a Bible? Well, it was um, it it was a monotheistic text. Uh, so for Christian missionaries or British uh, scholars, that was uh, a good feature for a, a Bible to have. Um, and for Hindus, and particularly for Hindus who were active in the independence movement, uh, that is the movement to uh, gain Indian independence from British colonial control, the Bhagavad Gita uh, seemed to offer some very pertinent teachings in a text that was uh, you know, ancient, that was that was classical. So it, it had certain uh, um, features that made it really appealing to uh, the Indian independence movement. Um, and, and so that too gave the, the, the Bhagavad Gita a much greater kind of um, dissemination uh, within the Indian population. So it, um, you know, from the, I would say that from the beginning of the 19th century to the 21st century, the, the um, uh, status of the Bhagavad Gita has been on the, on the upswing. When like, figures like Gandhi, for example, would take up the Gita and, and, and use it in, in some of their – Gandhi would use it you know, for his purposes. How, yes. how, how would that contrast with some of the earlier interpretive communities? Are there – within Hinduism, there's obviously no overarching authority that sort of – declares what the proper canon is or anything like that or sort of what the proper bounds of belief are. So you have yes. this text that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. How does it function then authoritatively uh, for Hindu people? Yes. Well, that, the, that's a question that the um, Indian, you know, the Indian interpreters of the late 19th and early 20th century had to, to contend with. Um, and uh, so they basically were arguing that this is a, a, a modern text. This is a text that is still relevant. And um, they, uh, one of the most important of the um, political interpreters of the Bhagavad Gita, a guy named B.G. Tillich, who was uh, a Maharashtrian, uh, argued that um, in previous eras, such as the era of the Vedanta commentators, that was the age of renunciation, and that was a time in which the Bhagavad Gita could indeed be interpreted um, as uh, appropriate for uh, renouncers, for religious people who were seeking personal salvation. But in the present age, which he called the age of action, uh, it was necessary for to understand the Bhagavad Gita in a different way, as a message of of kind of active engagement in in fun, fundamentally political affairs, mm -hmm. and so they emphasized again going back to these three paths, uh, most of the political or yeah politically engaged um, interpreters of the Bhagavad Gita in the 20th century emphasized the role of action, the, 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 the way of action. Um, in fact, Gandhi uh, did as well. And, uh, you know, he said, well, what, what, you know, what, what are we supposed to be devoted to? Or, you know, uh, he argued that um, those who were devoted to Krishna in a sort of traditional way were, in fact, not doing anything useful. And a better form of devotion uh, would be to um, feed the poor or 
uh, take up nursing or, as he did, you know, engage also in political activities aimed at, um, you know, bettering the, the uh, Indian population. So they were engaged in a, you know, in an enterprise of, of, of really reassessing and re-identifying um, uh, what uh, devotion, what you know, what the message of the Bhagavad Gita is, and what the true meaning of devotion is. What is the true meaning of action? One of the uh, major uh, disagreements among those commentators, that is, the early Indian commentators of the independence movement, had to do with the question of violence, uh, and so for m- many of the Indian freedom fighters who were later called or who, who were identified as extremists like Tillich and uh, the early Aurobindo, the fact that the Bhagavad Gita uh, was, a, was a text of persuasion leading to Arjuna's willingness to, to fight in a righteous cause, mm-hmm. that was a that offered a good parallel to a recognition that, in fact, violence in the service of gaining independence from Britain might be an appropriate strategy, might be an appropriate path. For Gandhi, who was deeply philosophically committed to nonviolence and who had, you know, developed that philosophy in his work in South Africa before returning to India, um, that was that that was impossible. It was impossible for him to interpret the Bhagavad Gita uh, as a call to violence. So, in a, in order to maintain his own um, uh, philosophical commitment to nonviolence and yet be true to the clear um, <laughs> rhetoric of the Bhagavad Gita, right. he had to um, interpret the, the Bhagavad Gita allegorically. Mm-hmm. So his uh, argument was that, well, in fact, this war between the Pandavas and the Kauravas is a metaphor for the war that takes place in the lives of each of us uh, between good and evil tendencies. Uh, and so... Krishna is really calling on us, says Gandhi, you know, for us to fight our own moral failings and to uh, try to uh, make sure that uh, good prevails within, you know, within our own lives. That sort of gets at the the real difficulty between interpretive communities of the same text because you have some that can reasonably use the text to justify war and violence um, in the name of a greater good. And then you have Gandhi seeking a more personalized application of it um, where it's about the war within yourself and and sort of overcoming personal uh, issues and and urging nonviolence but you know who can arbitrate between those interpretations you can make either interpretation yes well it is it is important to as as you said before to recognize that in hinduism um, there's no final uh you know, arbiter of those kind of disputes. Those kind of disputes go on and on. And and to me, <laughs> that is one of the most, not just fascinating, but also attractive features of Hinduism. That is that Hinduism is a kind of a open field for, for discussion. 
Uh, and, um, you know, so those questions do not get resolved. You have ongoing disputes about a, a book about disputes. <laughs> exactly so. <laughs> exactly so. I'm speaking today with Richard Davis. He's the director of the Asian Studies program at Bard College that's in New York. And he's also the author of a biography of the Bhagavad Gita in Princeton's Lives of Great Religious Book series. Let's return to the origins of the text a second to talk about place and time and the way that place and time impacts the life of a religious text like this. So you're dealing with a text that's connected to an identifiable geographical location. And correct me if I pronounce this wrong, but Kurukshetra? Kurukshetra, yes. Yeah, so what implications does such specific location have for a text like the Gita? Are, are there things that happen at that location to the present time? Right. That's a very interesting question. Um, and I uh, have spent some time in Kurukshetra um, looking into that. Um, Kurukshetra is a small town in uh, northwest of, of Delhi. Uh, and it's a it's been a pilgrimage site for a long time. But it is... in if you compare its importance to the importance of the Mahabharata in Indian culture and the importance of the Bhagavad Gita in, in the history of Hinduism, uh, it's quite surprising. It was quite surprising to me how minor Kurukshetra is, right? It is, uh, you know, a small city. And when you go there, um, there is a place that is identified as the exact place where Krishna and Arjuna had their conversation. Uh, there is a tree that grows there that is a, said it's a banyan tree, and it's said to be the uh, descendant of the original tree under whose shade Krishna and Arjuna spoke. Uh, there's no reference in the Bhagavad Gita to, to being under the shade of a banyan tree, but you know we'll, we'll leave that aside. Um, and it's really it's a very minor place um, that was kind of surprising to me. Now Kurukshetra, like many places in India, has been trying to uh, boost its um, tourist profile, and so in the last uh, 20 or so years, there have been a number of civic efforts to. Um, uh, cash in as a kind of a crude way of putting it, but to um, to, to, to make the uh, legacy of the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita more um, uh, part of, of Kurukshetra's own appeal, that is to draw tourists in. And so there is now a very nice um, museum called the Sri Krishna Museum, which is, in, as far as I know, the only museum in India devoted to a, a uh, a single deity, um, and every year at the time of the birthday of the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavad Gita has a birthday, um, there is a big festival, and mm. the festival has been growing year by year um, over the last 20 or so years. Um, it used to be, I mean, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the Gita Jayanti, the birthday of the Gita, has been celebrated um, you know, for at least a uh, hundred years, I'm not sure how far it goes back. Uh, but, but by and large, it's been a quite a small thing in which, um, groups of Hindus would get together and collectively recite the entire Bhagavad Gita together. So it's, you know, kind of a small recitative ceremony. So is it more um, for the purpose of like, um, commemoration more so than any sort of salvational efficacy attached to the holiday? 
Um, I'd say both, but but yes, probably more. Um, you know, just a, a kind of a self reminder of the of the teachings, but also. Uh, in many communities, you would uh, fast. Uh, so there, there is a sense in which it's um, a very auspicious thing to do, a, a thing that would uh, lead to, you know, some good spiritual karma. Um, but the in uh, Kurukshetra now, uh, there is a, a big uh, uh, festival that involves a, a crafts fair, uh, processions, uh, holy men come in from all over to... Uh, parade around, and uh, then there are big dramatic performances, there are uh, uh, spiritual um, uh, expositions of the Bhagavad Gita's teachings. So it's become, in Kurukshetra, kind of a major major festival. It's quite recent, again, but it's, um, you know, but it's increasingly um, a part of the local culture of Kurukshetra. It's very nice. The Bhagavad Gita itself doesn't lend itself to um, performance in the way that other episodes from the Mahabharata do, right? It's just right. two guys talking, right? You know, you can't do much <laughs> with that. But um, what was the movie, My Dinner with Andre? You know, there. I mean, there occasionally you run into something like that, but but not very often. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, other episodes, other incidents from the Mahabharata have, you know, long um, dramatic um uh, traditions, but you know the Bhagavad Gita is mostly a, tech, a, a work that uh, lends itself to exposition. Um, so one of the things that I, I got interested in in um, the course of doing this book was, um, you know, how, how is the Bhagavad Gita performed? If it if it's not a dramatic text, then how are what are the ways that uh, we can see it being performed? It is a, in a way a performative text. Uh, so I went around and uh, visited um, and participated in and listened in on uh, different kinds of uh, ways that the Gita is being recited nowadays in public contexts, the way in which uh, different uh, modern teachers are uh, um, explicating the text in different for different kinds of audiences. Uh, so that that was something that was a, another again another sort of side of the Bhagavad Gita that I had never really um, thought about until I began to work on this book. Uh, and you know and and so it, that that's interesting. It's interesting to think about how texts uh, are performed, even even ones that we think of as philosophical texts. So it and it also led me to think, oh yeah, and when I teach that text, uh, it's that's a kind of performance too. That's a kind of performance for a particular audience, college students. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it gave me a kind of a a little opportunity to reflect on my own ways of presenting. That's a really interesting way to think about it, is, a, is another type of performance of the text. Yeah. So we talked a bit about the Gita as a text in a particular place and time, but one of the reasons your book was written, a biography of the text, is because the Gita has transcended those uh, original things. But you touched on this a little bit earlier, the question about how a revelation given in a particular time through a particular person with all of those cultural trappings ends up transcending its origins. And Hindu philosophers have talked about the eternal Vedas and that the text reflects eternal, not just temporal concerns. But yet, if you look at the text, it's it, it's very couched in a historical time period. So how do you approach the doubleness, is what you call it, the doubleness of the historical and eternal uh, aspects of this book? 
Yeah. Well, that is really the kind of the central uh, conundrum that I that I've thought about and tried to deal with throughout the writing of this book. Um, and I don't know if I have a final answer, but um, I used um, as a sort of a um, uh, epigraph for the for the for my conclusion a, a, a statement by the Russian literary critic uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, and he talks about how texts. Uh, and particularly great texts uh, live on in what he calls great time. Uh, great time meaning a, a time way beyond their own, the historical circumstances of their own composition. Um, and uh, for me, uh, the way that they live on in great time is by uh, entering into dialogue with other readers who encounter them in their own time and place and read them seriously, not as, you know, historical texts of another time, but as containing uh, potentially relevant teachings to their own time, their own situation. Uh, so, so for me, the idea of a kind of a, of, of readers entering into a dialogue with a, a, a text from another tradition, oftentimes, um, it was a was a very um, uh, you know kind of productive way of thinking about the way in which different readers over time have engaged with the with the Bhagavad Gita, and I think that's a you know a kind of a an approach uh, that is general. That is that we could think about uh, approaching you know the way in which readers approach the Book of Job or uh, the uh, you know Sufi poetry of Rumi uh, in the same way. That is, it's not simply an act of interpretation, but an act of, of, of kind of engagement and dialogue in which the, uh, there's a kind of a give and take between the text and the, and the reader. Um, and uh, the reader brings his or her own presuppositions, uh, agendas, uh, premises, all to that work. But the has but also has to be uh, open has to have a kind of a interpretive openness to the way in which the text to the to the things that the text wants to say yeah i've got the Bakhtin quote here uh, part of it anyway it says there is neither a first word nor a last work even meanings born in dialogues of the remotest past will never be grasped once and for all for they will always be renewed in later dialogue and that kind of sums up what you do with the concluding fourth of the book or so you one thing i was interested in is the book really took off in germany what why why is that sort of in the 19th <laughs> century what was that yes yeah yeah well that's an interesting question you know why does a text take off in certain places and certain times germany um at the time this was the, you know this was the the very end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th so this was this was the beginning of the romantic period and for reasons that are, are kind of um, peculiar um, many of the earliest romantic thinkers identified india as as being the kind of the, the beginning of, of, of civilization, mm -hmm. right? So uh, they thought maybe Eden had been uh, somewhere in India. Maybe the, you know, the uh, Ganges River was the actual, you know, first place of civilization. So they, as a kind of a response to their own 
distress about the way uh, European civilization appeared to them. Uh, they were interested in going back to a, a, a you know a kind of a primordial way of being. Mm. So um, so the the even even before any of these uh, texts appeared, right? So the the Bhagavad Gita was first translated in 1785 into English, and then is that the one who did the kind of King James ish speech? Yes, right, right. Charles Wilkins, uh, lots of these and thous. Yeah, um, and he, you know, he was a British official, one of the greatest of the early Sanskritists. Yeah, uh, and but that was the first text, uh, the Bhagavad Gita was the first direct translation for, of a Sanskrit work into a European language. Mm. So it was a very important moment in the kind of the history of, of, of Indology, but also of, of the um, Western knowledge of the East. Uh, and, and Germany was, was somehow riper than any place else for uh, just a kind of a fascination with the um, these new works that started arriving from India, uh, in part because, again, they were interested in, in, in finding a way to go back to a, a more original and more uh, morally grounded way of being that they thought might have been at the beginning of time. Okay, or the so beginning kind of, of human civilization, romanticization of yes of, a, of an exotic culture. How did how did the translation that I have, it, uh, which is by the Vedanta Society of Southern California, how did that wind up with an introduction by uh, Aldous Huxley? And I assume <laughs> it's from an earlier yes. iteration. Yes, yes, that's a very interesting translation, and I um, it's one of my favorites. Uh, so the translation was done by uh, two people, uh, Swami Prabhavananda. Uh, who was uh, one of the Vedanta teachers, uh, very popular with the Hollywood crowd in the 1940s, and uh, Christopher Isherwood, the the um, British um, poet and novelist who had ended up in living in in Southern California by the 19 by the, around 1940. So, uh, and he was a friend of Aldous Huxley. Now, Aldous Huxley went around the country in around 1938, 39. Uh, speaking uh, against uh, war. He was a pacifist. Mm -hmm. And um, during the war, uh, he was in a kind of a deep state of despair over what was going on in World War II. Uh, it was, uh, many people were, of course. Um, and um, what he did, his response to the World War II was to try gain from all of the religious literatures of the world uh, a what he called a perennial philosophy, right? A, a, a single philosophy that w that um, he believed was underlying all of the major religious traditions. And so his own work, The Perennial Philosophy, is uh, basically an anthology of teachings from all different traditions that he sees as, as, as forming a single philosophical perspective that is, again, a, a human perspective. So for him, for Huxley, the Bhagavad Gita offered mm, probably the most succinct um, 
description of or articulation of that perennial philosophy that he found in all religions. So, and he was a friend of Isherwood, so he wrote the introduction. And in the, in that introduction, again, he's sort of trying to make the argument that the Bhagavad Gita offers that articulation of the perennial philosophy that he believed common to all the world religious traditions. And that would be in the present world, that is, in 1945, the salvation of the post-war mm. world. Okay. I mean, appearing right then, yeah, it carried a lot of weight, obviously, with yes, people's yeah. minds very attuned to warfare. And Yeah. And what it. are we going to do next? You know, after yeah. the bomb, after the Holocaust, mm. you know, you know what? how yeah. are we going to remake the world? So what's really interesting is that that was just one of several Gita translations. You talk about uh, the Gita's new clothes, the translations that <laughs> right. proliferated as the text popularity grew. So um, following another scholar of translation, you talk about a few considerations that translators have to take into account when they're working with a book like the Gita. So exactly. what, are, what are some things that, that make it difficult or that, that translators have to reckon with when they're putting it into a different language. Right, right. Well, I think the the first thing that they really have to reckon with is is their audience, right? They have to think about what kind of audience they want to address. And then they also have to have an idea about what they think the text is really. And in a in a text like the Bhagavad Gita, is it a devotional text? Is it a philosophical text? Is it a historical text? Is it a, a form of poetry? Um, that's it's all of those things, right? And so um, those kind of decisions um, really end up being very uh, uh, centrally reflected in the kind of um, kind of translation that's that is produced. That is the conception about what the text is and their own sense of who they're speaking to and for. In the book, you talk about different kind of different Gitas for different readers. You mentioned audience. Uh, you talk about a scholar's Gita, a poet's Gita, devotee's Gita, and a philosopher's Gita. Take a second to kind of unpack those. Yes, right. Well, the, the scholar's Gita um, was the kind of the Gitas that I uh, – grew up on as a graduate student, right? The, the Gitas that assume that this is a historical text of classical India and that the people that are going to be interested uh, in reading this translation want a kind of scholarly accuracy. They want to understand who the Gita was speaking to in its original time of composition, and they want to uh, be able to see how it... Um, set forth its own teachings and ideas in that kind of context, in that world. So the Scholar's Gita, um, you know, is, is really a, a, a Gita that tries to maintain a certain fidelity, a, a very strong fidelity, I should say, to the original composition. Uh, and Again, that's the kind of uh, translations that I've valued a lot when I've been teaching the Bhagavad Gita as a historical text. Uh, but um, if you assume that the kind of readers that you are wanting to address have different intentions, then, you know, your translation might take on a, a different complexion. So the second kind of Gita that I talk about is a, is a poet's Gita. Um, you mentioned the um, uh, Isherwood and Prabhavananda 
uh, translation. So Isherwood, of course, was okay. a literary figure, and he was very attuned to the poetic qualities of the of the text. So that's one example. So the poet Skita. Um, uh, Stephen Mitchell is a is a poet who has um, produced translations very broadly of religious works from multiple traditions, uh, so including works from the Bible, Sufi poetry, uh, Chinese works, and uh, and the Bhagavad Gita. And he obviously can't know all of those languages, and he cheerfully says that he does not know any Sanskrit. He <laughs> says, you know, there are plenty of English translations, so why should I you know, worry about that. So he is not concerned with a kind of uh, scholarly accuracy to the original Sanskrit. He's not capable of that. But he believes that the Bhagavad Gita, um, you know, is a wisdom text, is a text that sets forth kind of fundamental religious teachings uh, in a highly poetic way. So the kinds of uh, concerns that he uh, talks about in his introduction are like, well, what kind of meter in English would be best to convey the kind of poetic quality of the, San, of the original Sanskrit? So, um, again, it's not a, a scholar's translation by any means, but he's really trying to make the Bhagavad Gita speak to a contemporary American audience. Is this the same person who did the, hasn't he done the Epic of Gilgamesh and some other translations? He has done many other translations, yeah. Okay. So then you've got the devotees Gita. Right. So what if you believe that um, Krishna is in fact God and you are de a devotee of him? Right. Then the quality of the text is, is very different and um, has to be presented in a different way. So the, the devotees Gita that I talk about is the Again, the uh, first translation that I ever saw, the translation by Swami Prabhupada, who is the founder of the ISKCON, the Hare Krishna movement in, uh, in the West. Uh, and he come, came out of a very um, long-standing devotional um, school in India. And in order to uh, present uh, the Bhagavad Gita to his new audience of Western devotees of Krishna, he um, wanted to, first of all, um, convey very clearly that this was always God speaking. And then he also wanted to uh, teach his new devotee, his new um, uh, followers, how to recite properly. So there's a kind of a whole... Um, apparatus built into the translation um, to explaining how to pronounce and how to recite. And then in for each verse, he also gives a, a commentary, which again is a kind of an old, long-standing uh, Hindu tradition. Uh, how do you, how do you uh, learn the Bhagavad Gita? Well, you learn it not only by verses, but also with, with a commentary. So he gives a, a purport of each verse, and in that purport, he's able to uh, teach the basics of what Krishna consciousness is. Mm. So that's a, a you know a kind of a devotional approach to the text. Uh, and again, there are many um, similar texts, uh, uh, tr translations that also contain uh, commentaries presenting other, you know other perspectives on the text. And then you've got the philosophers' Gita and versions geared toward a more philosophical 
angle different than the other three? Yeah, a little bit different. So the figure that I focus on is uh, Sarvapelli Radhakrishna, who was a very important kind of mid-20th century Indian philosopher. And his great enterprise was to find a way to um, unify or find common ground between the East and the West. And he was also writing in this period of... Uh, New Indian independence, uh, World War II and its aftermath. And so he really wanted to show that the Bhagavad, the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita spoke to Western philosophical concerns as well as Indian ones. So in his, he also includes a commentary in his translation. But instead of citing other Indian philosophical perspectives, he's often citing... Um, Spinoza or Hume or Descartes or mm. Plato or books from the Bible. So his idea was, again, to kind of find the Gita, use the Gita as a way to bridge what for many was a big cultural civilizational gap between the East and the West or between uh, European thinking and, and Indian thinking. So for him, that was, it was translating the Bhagavad Gita was part of a larger philosophical enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so he viewed the text, again, not in primarily religious terms, but primarily as a, as a philosophical exposition. I'm speaking today with Richard Davis. He's the director of the Asian Studies program at Bard College in New York. He's author of a biography of the Bhagavad Gita in Princeton's Lives of Great Religious Book series. We're going to take a break and be right back with the conclusion of this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. Hey, this is Blair Hodges from the Maxwell Institute podcast. Did you know the Maxwell Institute now offers digital subscriptions to our three periodicals? $10 gets you access to the latest issues of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, the Mormon Studies Review, and Studies in the Bible and Antiquity. All three for just 10 bucks. Or hey, maybe you're like me and you still love the heft of a journal printed on actual paper. Well, print subscriptions are also available, and a print subscription to any one of our journals includes digital access to all three of them. You can subscribe at our website. Go to maxwellinstitute.byu.edu slash subscribe for more information. We're back with Richard Davis. He wrote a biography of the Bhagavad Gita and Princeton's Lives of Great Religious Book series. Richard, I spent a little time um, looking for books like yours that analyze the history of the Gita as a religious text and how it's been interpreted over time, but I, I didn't find much of anything. Um, you know, you can find dozens of books about, well, hundreds of books about biblical texts and things like that. Is there is there a comparative dearth in similar studies of the Gita, or was I just didn't spend enough time looking? Right. There aren't as many as one would expect. Uh, there are a number of very good ones, but they only deal with uh, particular periods in uh, the life of the, of the Gita. So I claim that this is the first um, life of the, bi the biography of the Bhagavad Gita to deal with the whole life uh, comprehensively. But uh, along the way, I uh, re read and make uh, good use of other scholars who have written on, for instance, um, the Bhagavad Gita as it was interpreted by the Vedanta philosophers. Uh, there's a very fine book by Arvind Sharma called The Hindu Gita. Um, there are a couple of very good books about um, the Gita uh, 
in uh, you know for for um, among german philosophers right mm-hmm. um there are several books that look at the gita as it was interpreted in the indian independence movement right so there are uh, my chapters uh, e- each chapter um for <laughs> How should I say this? For each chapter, one could find at least one or two uh, scholarly treatments that are not directed, um, you know, that are more scholarly in their orientation. Um, so, so there have been studies. I'm not. Uh, this is not, a, a, you know, a, at all a unique uh, enterprise that I'm engaged in. Um, but attempt to here to uh, present this broader. Uh, span of the life of the Bhagavad Gita, and do so for uh, you know for a general uh, intelligent but non-specialized audience. That's I think what um, the this biography uh, is all about. Right. So you interact with a lot of other scholarship that's been produced. Um, you know, and a book like this is always kind of a communal production in terms of getting assistance and advice from other people. Did you? Did you also speak with um, Hindu practitioners that that assisted with the book at all, or kind of gave their input on the manuscript? Not not so much. No, um, well, you know what I did was um, uh, spoke with Hindu practitioners uh, who were um, performers, uh, and uh, so that was a sort of a underground underpinning for the uh, for certain sections of the Gita. Um, but by and large, the um, community of um, that I acknowledge in the acknowledgments, right, the people that I discussed uh, different ideas and my own approach with, uh, you know, were by and large scholars, scholars uh, in Indian studies and also, you know, other people in other areas of religious studies. It's kind of a, a fraught area. I'm thinking in, of Wendy Doniger or Doniger. I don't know how to Doniger, pronounce her yeah. last name. Yeah. Who wrote an alternative history uh, of the Hindus and caused a stir and has been condemned by um, certain Hindu fundamentalist groups and things. Do you have you thought about any potential backlash like that, or do you think your book <laughs> would face something like that as well? Yeah. Thank you for asking me that question. Um, I- indeed, I have. Um, so Wendy Doniger. Who, as you say, has been a, a you know a, a controversial figure. She's a mm-hmm. very respected um, scholar of of Hinduism among American academics and and international academics. But uh, for reasons that are not all entirely clear to me, she has been identified as the sort of uh, the, the, the 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 wicked witch of the West by by a, a lot of um, orthodox. Um, are what people I would call Hindu nationalists. Uh, she wrote a review of uh, my book, the first review to come out in the New York Review of Books, and um, that, in fact, uh, she, she got a lot of flack <laughs> for yeah. the things that she said. Um, Somehow she it was like she was the lightning rod of the you know uh, she took all the all the lightning and and I sort of you know I was down there in the house somewhere, <laughs> thanking thanking God thank God she did it. Um, so um, I I don't um, write polemically um, and I didn't write with the intention of 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 provoking anyone, um, but. It's certainly possible, 
and uh, has entered uh, my mind a lot that uh, Hindu a Hindu nationalist, a person who's uh, devoted to um, taking the Hindu tradition as infallible, mm -hmm. um, could could uh, see my study as being provocative and um, you know deeply problematic. Um, there was the, f uh, uh, you know, people told me, no, never read your, um, the responses on Amazon.com. But, but the first uh, review on Amazon.com was from somebody who was, clearly hadn't read this book, but, but was, you know, fulminating about my own, you know, what, what's this, uh, you know, American doing writing about the Hindu Bible and uh, how could he say that it was, you know, um, invented in the 1785 by Charles Wilkins, you know, so there, there was a kind of a way in which um, it was a predictable uh, <laughs> Is that the person response. that called it a monstrosity? Is that the, <laughs> Probably the so, yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, so I did read that. Uh, that, that um, it and says my, it's a uh, fashionable money-making gig, so I don't know. Was that... Ah, yes. You, well, that's, uh, I'm, I'm definitely making a lot of money out of this. <laughs> um, as I, you know, uh, take my uh, yacht down to the Caribbean. Yes. Um, but for you, it kind of like water off a duck's back. I mean, you don't have to face too much of the more fundamentalist type of criticism, right? It's just you'll maybe see some things online or... So far, that's been the case, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, it, there have been um, some f quite serious um, attacks on other American scholars um, who have said things that uh, you know, oftentimes from out of the blue, provoke um, different kinds of uh, groups in India. Yeah. Uh, so it's not it's not it's not something that to take completely lightly. But so far, um, yeah, the, so far it's just been water off my back, um, and I, I'm hoping that it stays that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I do too. So in your acknowledgments, you thank the series editor Fred Appel, and you say that his invitation to write this book. Um, set you on a journey that's been challenging and rewarding, and then you say that your journey's not over yet. So I'm interested where your journey's headed then. What, what's ahead for you? So w when I first began work on this, I got very excited about it and um, wrote um, a lot, uh, including quite long chapters on um, individual readers of the Bhagavad Gita. And... Um, I showed some of this to the series editor, Fred Appel, and he said, well, Richard, you know, there's a, you know, 40,000 word limit to this book, and this is really for, uh, you know, uh, the readers of The New Yorker, not for, you know, your fellow scholars, and, uh, you know, can you, like, rewrite this a little bit and cut out about half of it? And... Um, it was very good advice, <laughs> um, and so I had to go back and start over. Uh, but now I'm interested in trying to recover um, some of those longer chapters, and 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 the longer chapters um, go along with uh, what we were talking about earlier in terms of um, uh, Bakhtin and his notions of dialogue uh, and. And my idea of uh, readers as being um, situated readers who engage in a dialogue with a text. So I'm I'm interested now in trying to write some longer 
essays on individual readers of the Bhagavad Gita. In this the biography that I've written, you know, Gandhi gets about eight pages. I'd like to write, a, you know, a 40-page or 50-page essay on Gandhi's reading of the Bhagavad Gita and really sort of explore it in much more detail. I'd like to do one on uh, Thoreau. I'd like to do one on uh, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer. So, so I'm interested in continuing this work on the on the reading of the Bhagavad Gita, but have doing it. Have there been any popular a, ones like that on on any women that have have? Ah, uh, very good reading. question. No, other people have urged me to think about that, and I know there is nothing like that. Um, one really interesting reader of the um, Bhagavad Gita who I have thought about is Annie Besant. Uh, who was an Irish uh, radical who went to India. She became active in the Indian independence movement and, um, and also uh, produced one of the uh, translations of the, of the Bhagavad Gita. So, so that would be actually, uh, thank you for <laughs> asking me <Yeah. laughs> that because I, she's a person that I do need to follow up on. Um, by and large, uh, you know, uh, there are, Female readers of the Bhagavad Gita prior to I don't know 1950 are you know I mean we don't we don't have records we don't have lots of of material about that. It sounds like um, it's a lot of work ahead though. It sounds like there's a whole lot of stuff you can do. It is indeed, yeah, yeah. So this is a yeah, it's an ongoing project, um, and uh, of course I never have enough time. None of us ever do, but um, but it's something again. The the this project has you know whetted my appetite for uh, sure. continuing to work on this on this material and 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 sort of develop this kind of approach, not just to the Bhagavad Gita, but to thinking about how we read religious texts generally, both within faith traditions and outside of faith traditions. That's Richard Davis. He's a professor of religion and director of the Asian Studies program at Bard College in New York. And he recently published a biography on the Bhagavad Gita in the Lives of Great Religious Books series. There's a link on the Maxwell Institute's website that'll give you more information about the book and a link to Amazon where you can pick up a copy. Richard, thanks a lot for being with us today. Thank you very much, Blair. Blair. 